This podcast covers a double homicide that occurred in Wildwood, Florida in 1972. There have been no arrests in this case. All individuals are considered innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. You look at an overhead shot of the Oak Grove Cemetery in Wildwood, Florida, and the surrounding properties today, and then compare it to an aerial shot from 1972. You will see that not much has changed. From above, the road into the cemetery looks like a capital P that's fallen on its side surrounded by pasture land. There's a fairweather pond between the cemetery and the property that abuts it to the north. Since 1972, a few homes have popped up on properties surrounding it, but back then, the closest home in the immediate area of the cemetery was the home of Aubrey Barnes and his family. His son would later date Shirley, and according to her brother, he would date her for the longest of all the other boys whose names that he gave police when they came to talk to him right after his sister's murder. So we're going to talk about Aubrey for a little bit, because his name came up to me a couple times as suggestions of someone who could have something to do with these homicides. Aubrey would most certainly be described in today's law enforcement terms as a local bad actor, meaning that he was someone known to law enforcement and known to offend. The list of his offenses included moonshining and bolita, which is an illegal type of lottery game that he was running out of a store that he owned. That store was in the black section of town, and we're talking about the 1950s, so I probably don't have to explain in great detail why a white man who considered himself a local businessman would open a store in the black section of town versus the white section of town, a business that was involved in illegal gambling. But Aubrey's non-violent offenses were peppered in between violent and what I would call violence-adjacent offenses. In 1949, Aubrey and his brother Grady were involved in the shooting of a night watchman and his wife, who were making their rounds that night at a crate factory. Janet Williams had previously worked for Grady. Later at trial, Mrs. Williams would tell the jury that while she worked for him in his store, he tried to kiss her once, and then he attempted to sell her things at less than the retail price. After she quit the job, she said Grady came to her apartment and told her that he loved her, and he would pay for a divorce and provide her with a place to stay, if she would agree. She refused. Two nights later, she said that he came back, and he wanted her to leave with him. She said he promised to leave her alone afterward if she would just go for a drive with him, just one more time. Mrs. Williams said he drove her to a spot two miles from Coleman, into the woods, and there, quote, intimacy occurred. Now, the interesting part is that at trial, Grady denied that there was any relationship with Mrs. Williams at all. Now, that seems unlikely that a woman back in 1949 would admit to having an affair that didn't occur. There would be no benefit to her in doing so, socially or otherwise. In fact, the opposite. Her husband, Cody Williams, testified on the stand that his wife, had admitted to him two weeks before the shooting that she had been intimate with Grady. So then he went to see Grady with a note from his wife requesting her former employer to pay him 
the three dollars that was owed to his wife for work. While he was there, he warned Grady to never speak with his wife again. Cody Williams would tell the jury that, on the night of the shooting, Grady and Aubrey, who he had never seen before that night, drove up to their store, which was next to the crate factory where he and his wife were making his rounds. When Grady addressed his wife, Mr. Williams said, I told you, Grady, two weeks ago, never to speak to me or my wife again, you dirty dog. Grady then told his brother Aubrey to hand him a gun. Aubrey reached into the car, loaded a shotgun, handed it to his brother Grady and said, Kill them both. I've got $20,000 to get you out of it. A witness who lived nearby, as well as a Coleman police officer, both testified to hearing the shots, and they both said that the shotgun fired first, followed 15 or 20 seconds later by two pistol shots. Cody Williams was armed with a pistol that night, which would indicate that he was defending himself. At trial, Grady and Aubrey insisted that Cody Williams had shot at them first. Witnesses confirmed that the brothers left the scene of the shooting, and when pressed on that, both men said that, well, we left because we were going to head to the police station. Grady's lawyer asked Mr. Williams on the stand if he had gone to Grady's home two weeks before the incident to shake him down for $3 at gunpoint. Cody Williams adamantly denied that. And then Cody's wife testified that Mrs. Aubrey Barnes came to her house after the shooting and offered her $1,000 and all her expenses paid if she dropped the lawsuit. When the court asked her about this from the stand, Mrs. Aubrey Barnes denied doing so. Now a quick hop over to Google will tell you that $1,000 in 1949 equates to a little over $12,000 today. So that was no small offer. Now I've told you this story not just for the implications of handing your brother a shotgun and telling him to go ahead and shoot the husband of the woman that you've had an affair with because you've got what you know is enough money to grease the wheels of justice in his favor. But I'm also mentioning this because it's a situation where a male-female relationship is the inciting incident and it appears that not only did Aubrey's brother Grady not want to take no for an answer, his brother Aubrey was happy to help him attain the result he wanted, even if that involved killing someone in the process. Kill them both. I've got $20,000 to get you out of it. Mrs. Aubrey Barnes, popping in to try to make it all go away? Well, that's the cherry on top, but my guess is that that wasn't because she wanted to be there making that offer. Women didn't have control of that much money back then. We were essentially chattel. And that's only the first violent adjacent incident that I would find related to Aubrey. To be fair, and while further painting a portrait of his character, I should note that at the first trial, both men were found guilty and sentenced to 10 years at Rayford State Prison. But the history of this case included an appeal and then a mistrial. After Aubrey was seen having lunch with some of the jurors right out in public for everyone to see. Four years into the whole process, the brothers were acquitted, and it was learned that they had been out of jail the whole time, quote, at liberty on $8,000 bond that had been put up by businessmen of the county. I don't know that I even need to explain that power dynamic any further. 
other than to say Aubrey Barnes was arrested for quite a few crimes that he managed to slither out of every time. In the ensuing years, Aubrey and his son-in-law, Georgie Boy Altman, would be arrested for moonshining multiple times, and in one instance, local agents hid and watched a cache of whiskey to see who would come to claim it. It was hidden in a thicket near the Oak Grove Cemetery, in the area where Aubrey's property abutted it. His family was well familiar with that cemetery property. They had probably traversed every foot on foot on many occasions. To support that theory, when Georgie Boy and his partner in crime, Juddy Talbot, were arrested, he said they were out there because Aubrey had asked them to go out and search for a sick cow, and they just happened upon that whiskey. I think they had a bit of a harder time explaining why they'd been seen placing twigs and shrubbery on top of the 28 five-gallon jugs of contraband, and in that case, Aubrey posted bond for them both. Then in 1959, about ten years after his last violent incident involving a gun, Aubrey, his ever-invested son-in-law Georgie Boy, and a man named James Helton were arrested for attempted murder for the beating and shooting of a black barber in Wildwood, Florida. Georgie Boy had previously been accused of dragging another black man from his jail cell and beating him for making insulting remarks to a white woman. He was, in fact, out on $8,000 bond for that February incident when the assault on the barber occurred. As that story went, a local black woman named Florence Bevels, who owned the tavern outside which this incident occurred, had called police on another black female who was allegedly causing problems at her establishment. Helton, at the request of police, went to investigate. Aubrey and Georgie Boy also showed up separately. And perhaps that's because the woman causing the ruckus had made disparaging remarks about Aubrey himself, who owned a grocery store nearby. And I'm sure you understand that a black woman was absolutely not going to be making disparaging remarks about a white businessman in 1959. Not without consequence. During this incident, the barber was shot in the head with a 22 caliber pistol. Georgie Boy and Hilton were wounded in the gunfight when shots were returned. According to the paper, the woman who had initially argued with the tavern owner was actually getting into her car with her common-law husband when the three white men drove up and called out to her. The fact that they were already outside, leaving, suggests to me that simply getting her out of the bar wasn't the goal here. Helton drove up as they were getting in the vehicle and had a gun, and he told her he was the law and that she was under arrest. We're going to call him our pretend cop here because he was all hopped up on male adrenaline and racism and had been given the go-ahead by a member of law enforcement to make this his business. He grabbed the woman. She pulled away. Then one of the other white men, either Aubrey or Georgie Boy, essentially pistol-whipped her, although the wording in the newspaper was, slapped her in the head with the gun. Someone in the crowd yelled out, That man's not the law, toward the man now manhandling the black woman, causing her common-law husband to retrieve his gun from the car. Of course, the white men say that he shot first and the black men his pistol-whipped common-law wife and everyone within sniffing distance said otherwise. After the incident, Georgie Boy, Aubrey's son-in-law, skipped town, and it was interesting to note that police didn't do all that much to go fetch him. In fact, they said publicly, He's due in court on Monday. It would put the state to a lot of expense to return him. 
Mind you, that trial on Monday that they were affording him the grace to show up for on his word was related to a safe-cracking ring that had been run out of the prison, most certainly involving prison officials because the men doing the robbing had been let out at night to perform the local burglaries. Plural. More than one night. So, yeah. In the end, the Wildwood police chief at that time, Chief Nix, to his credit, recommended the dismissal of the Wildwood police radio operator named W.H. Burrow, who had sent Helton, our fake policeman, to the scene in the first place. Helton apparently worked for the Forestry Service. The radio operator's excuse? He said he was, quote, unable to get an officer to go to the scene, so he sent Helton to, quote, tell Aubrey to stay put and to tell the black women to go home and quit making a disturbance. This suggests that he knew Aubrey was already in the know, and he was headed over there to have a chat with her. Chief Nix said that the other officers were out tracking an escapee, a city prisoner. However, they were in separate radio-equipped cars, and neither reported any call from Bro. In addition, the radio log did not show that he had ever made any contact with either. Witnesses described the violent incident, saying that Georgie Boy had come up behind the black barber and begun beating him in the head with a hoe as the fake cop slash forestry service worker grabbed his weapon from the car. Then the other two white men held the barber down while the third shot him in the head. One of those men doing the holding was Aubrey Barnes. In a newspaper article after the incident, titled Wildwood Cop, tied to the clan after battle, it was revealed that the radio operator who had sent the fake cop slash forestry service worker to the incident that day was reported to be a high official in the state, southern, and national Ku Klux Klan. And this was yet another case where Aubrey was out and about on bond, continuing to offend while that case wound its way through the system. Only six months later, federal agents swarmed Sumter County rounding up moonshiners and destroying a huge whiskey still. Aubrey was arrested near his home and his car was confiscated by the feds. The newspaper report said, quote, The mash was still hot when the agents hit the still. These articles, they read like scenes out of the wild, wild west, and the bad actors involved were playing their parts well. Aubrey Barnes' story ended seven years after Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins were killed in the Oak Grove Cemetery. He left the Wildwood area not long after that double homicide. He met someone around 1973 who he'd marry in the end of 1974, right after his previous wife divorced him. He'd be married to this last wife for about five years, until she shot him on November 3, 1979. The newspaper account of the incident said that the couple were at their home in Greenville, Florida, rendering out lard in their yard when the fight began. She grabbed a twenty-two caliber bolt-action rifle from the porch and shot at her husband twice, missing both times. And when he ran inside, she fired the third shot through the front of the house, and it struck him in the back. She was found guilty of second-degree murder and sent to prison, but her appeal documents indicate that there was a bit more to the story. Aubrey's wife believed that she had established in court that she acted in self-defense, and therefore the trial court had erred in denying her motion for judgment and acquittal. While the appellate court did say 
there was some evidence that was not consistent in all aspects with portions of her account, they reversed her guilty verdict and remanded it for a new trial. They did this because at trial she had testified that Aubrey had a tendency to act violently and had threatened to kill her on previous occasions, as well as the day of the incident, and that he was attempting to get a gun when she shot him. During cross-examination of her daughter from a previous marriage, counsel questioned the daughter regarding an argument that had occurred a week before Aubrey's death. The state objected to this line of questioning, and the court sustained the objection on the grounds that it was irrelevant. The court refused to hear from the witness on that point, and later defense counsel tried to question her on the stand about her knowledge of a previous fight between Aubrey and another man for which he was facing aggravated assault charges at the time of his death. The court again sustained the state's objection to that testimony. The appeal court, however, agreed with her that the previous lines of questioning were relevant to her claim of self-defense. They said, quote, There was no proffer of the excluded testimony, and we are therefore unable to determine whether or not the answers, if given, would have been relevant to show Aubrey's violent nature of his threats toward his wife or her knowledge of his violent propensities and her fear of him. Under the peculiar circumstances of this case, which included evidence that the deceased had been sexually molesting her daughter, we consider that in the interest of justice she be granted a new trial. In the end, there was a plea bargain for four years in prison. She ended up doing too. This man, I will remind you, was depicted in a newspaper photo, standing on the cemetery road, pointing to blood on that road, the day after the double homicides in the Oak Grove Cemetery. As I said previously, Aubrey didn't stay in Wildwood much longer after the murders. I found an article in the newspaper dated July of 72, where he was listed as Aubrey Barnes of Mariana, Florida. He had run off the road, hit a telephone pole, went through a fence, and flipped his truck. At the time, he was charged with driving without a license and failure to control his vehicle. No mention of alcohol, although I was told by another witness who often came in contact with him that he always smelled of alcohol. I was also told that Aubrey always carried a pocket knife, although I don't necessarily think that's all that probative given that I suspect many men who lived in the area at the time did, probably still do. However, when trying to assess motive means an opportunity, we can certainly say that Aubrey had the latter two. But motive is where it gets a bit more interesting. Why would Aubrey be involved in any way with the Oak Grove double homicides unless he did so relative to his son? If his son was heartbroken over the breakup, as a family member alleged to me, would Aubrey avenge his son's broken heart, like he did with his brother Grady's? Well, that is the question. Kill them both. I've got $20,000 to get you out of it. Aubrey was never interviewed about this case. We don't know what he or his son would have said in 1972, if they had been questioned about their activities on the evening when Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins should have returned to the truck stop but didn't. We don't know where Aubrey or his son were between 3 and 4 a.m. because nobody thought to ask that day or in the days to follow. And that, my friends, is the problem with cold cases. 
a problem that becomes exponentially larger with every passing decade. You can't fix what you failed to do in the first place. In that article from right after the murder, where he's standing there with the reporter pointing down at that blood, they quoted him saying that on many previous nights, his family heard screaming and what sounded like gunshots coming from the area. That sentiment, though, it was repeated in subsequent newspaper articles, and it somehow evolved into neighbors, plural, reported hearing screams and laughter on several occasions, but nothing on the morning of the slayings. Police themselves had said that the cemetery was, quote, a frequent target of vandals due to gravestones being driven over. But who better than people who lived on the property next door to have seen or heard something that night? Who better to know that that area in the cemetery was a popular lover's lane, right up on a little hill that they could see from their yard when anyone drove in? It's hard to imagine two people were stabbed over 50 times in total, one even managing to get free and run down the road a bit, bleeding, and the inhabitants of one home right nearby hearing nothing. Neither victim called out that night for help. There were no sounds at all, not even the sound of a vehicle that we know its driver had gunned the gas in an effort to make a speedy getaway. Not a sound, huh? For my part, when I think of Aubrey, I think about those men's slippers that were found in the cemetery, considered by the profilers to be an anomaly. Well, they might be. They might have absolutely nothing to do with those murders. Or it might be that they weren't considered because the profilers didn't have all the information. What if the perpetrator, or one of the perpetrators that night, had been wearing them? Because, let's say, he was in for the night, until suddenly he wasn't. And they ended up one on either side of Shirley's vehicle because there was some active chase going on in the cemetery, and the perpetrator literally ran out of them. The slippers found were slides with no backs, and would come off easily. Another thing that I keep coming back to is how Shirley didn't have time to pull her pants on. It's one of the more telling points, as far as I'm concerned. I feel as though the approach of a vehicle, given where her car was found parked, and if that's where the vehicle was when the perpetrator or perpetrators encountered it, it would have been impossible not to see from that vantage point someone approaching, even if the headlights were turned off. That other vehicle would have to drive right past you or directly up next to you, as some of the investigators surmised had occurred based on the tire tracks in the grass around the car. And if that's me in that car, even if I'm not initially scared of who's driving up, even if I think it's another couple, no matter what's going on in that car up to that point, if a car pulls close enough to see into my window, we're done and I'm pulling up my pants. But what if the initial perpetrator didn't arrive by car? What if they arrived on foot, a bit more stealthily, and only sometime after did another perpetrator and vehicle enter the scene? That is certainly one possibility, because how is Shirley not getting dressed if there's only one perpetrator and he's busy with Roger? Common sense tells you you do try to take the male out first because they pose you the most threat. It seems unlikely that he would go after Shirley first with another able male there to defend her, and that male had been trained in the armed services, no less, 
Roger was listed in the report as six foot and 180 pounds. I've often thought that the perpetrator's first instinct was to yank open one of the doors and grab Shirley's clothing, tossing it far enough away from the vehicle so as to make it impossible for her to get dressed unless she got out of the car. And then he and Roger start fighting and Shirley can't get out of the car and she's trying to figure out what to do. Maybe someone heard noises coming from the cemetery and they went outside to look. And he stood there in his slippers wondering if he should hop in his vehicle and drive over there and tell those goddamn kids once and for all to stop treating the cemetery like their playground. Or maybe he'd seen Shirley's car casting its twin beams along the night sky as it pulled around that capital P, headlights poking at him through the trees. Maybe her car was recognized that night and someone or someones wanted to know who she was with. How about another maybe while we're here? Shirley was described as leaving the truck stop arm in arm with Roger. And it made me wonder if there's a reason for that. I discussed this aspect with quite a few of the people that I talked to. Because there's no way around the fact that leaving work with a man that you've only just met a couple hours before was a poor choice on Shirley's part. It put her at risk. But make no mistake, lest we cast aspersions on the woman for leaving with a man she didn't know, Roger put himself at risk too. He made an equally poor choice. I want to be clear, that's not a judgment. That's a fact, and we're trying to stick to the facts here. But what if there was a reason Shirley was arm in arm with Roger, above and beyond her general exuberance for just being free from work for an hour? What if there was a reason that she had been seen chatting with Roger for much of the time from midnight when she came to work to 3 a.m. when they left together? despite Roger being warned by the night manager twice. What if there was someone up at the truck stop or in the parking lot? Someone that Shirley knew and wanted to signal to in no uncertain terms that she was not interested. And what if that someone went home heartbroken over what he saw or angry and his father was up and awake? Perhaps it wasn't so much like grabbing a shotgun and saying, Go ahead, kill him. I've got 20000 to get you off. Maybe it was as simple as grabbing a beer, putting on his slippers and saying, You gonna let them make a fool of you, boy? Maybe. There are a lot of maybes in this case. If only the trees in the Oak Grove Cemetery could speak, decades of answers would be there for the listening. This cemetery, by the way, is known as the resting place to yet another unsolved homicide victim a nondescript metal marker reading Jane Doe, discovered on February 19, 1971, six months after being found under the Lake Panasofsky Bridge in Sumter County. Little Miss Lake Panasofsky's body was interred at the Oak Grove Cemetery. No next of kin ever came forward to claim her body. She has since been twice exhumed in the hopes of finding more information about her, but her story is still as shrouded in mystery as that of Shirley and Roger. Because it's a small, local cemetery, there are others who are tangentially related to the double homicide who are also buried there. Mr. Horace Crenshaw, the man who drove out that morning to tend to his father's grave and found Roger and Shirley. He's there. There's also a woman that Aubrey Barnes had been married to for what I can only assume was a shitty ten months given the quick divorce 
and the character of the man that she had been betrothed to. I spent a bit of time on Ancestry.com and found that he had actually married this woman in another county while he was still married to his previous wife. The thing that I feel fairly confident about here is that whoever killed Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins knew Shirley and felt somehow personally aggrieved. This seems to be a revenge-type killing, and the overkill in this case generally supports that. Add to that the fact that Shirley was new on the job at the truck stop. She'd only been there two weeks, and this was only her second overnight shift. That tells me that it was someone who either knew her schedule that night or who would have had to have been watching her at some point that night. Because the only other option is that it was someone that actually saw her drive into the cemetery. The scene and the injuries, they speak to anger. The flattened tires and the keys missing speak to a need for control. As far as Roy and Daryl, well, they can't be ruled out. Daryl's print was found in Shirley's vehicle, but he had been in that car with her the week before. I can picture a scenario where he leans over to kiss her goodbye and touches that steering wheel. And it's possible that Michelle's memories of what vehicle was being driven that night are just mistaken. The fact is, I cannot envision a situation where they would need to get together and lie about which vehicle they were in. Because no matter how late they got the girls home that night, whether it was between 1 and 2 like Michelle thought, or they arrived at their own homes by 1 a.m., in either scenario, one or both of them could still have had plenty of time to leave their homes and go up to the cemetery and commit the murders. Those girls were never their alibis either way. Based on my review of the documents in this case, none of the original persons of interest can truly be ruled in or out. So if you have information about the murders of Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins, please contact Captain John Galvin with the Sumter County Sheriff's Office at 352-569-1600. You can also email Captain Galvin at jgalvin at sumtercountysheriff.org. He was very responsive to my questions, and I'm sure that he would welcome any tips or new information on this case. I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat my plea. Please don't take to the grave what should have been left here. If you believe in a higher power and you're getting up in age, those inner twinges, that's your conscience reminding you, that the sand in the hourglass is not in your favor. If you aren't inclined to believe that there's a destination after this life, how about you just make it about someone else, the people who will be left behind, who have a right to know? I may not believe in God, because I don't generally operate out of a concern for my everlasting soul, but I am moved by people. I believe in doing right by them here and now, where it actually matters. And I believe the most generous acts involve lifting the burdens of others when you can. And there is no greater honor than to be able to do that for someone else. Shirley and Roger have living relatives. So if you need a reason to do the right thing, let them be your reason. Music this season, courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. As always, thank you for listening. 